This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, another episode of Transparency. We are joined today uh, by Janet and Sinead, uh, both members of and, and leaders and advisors as well on um, Gender Dysphoria Alliance. We've come together all, all together today to talk about the uh, WPATH uh, standards of care revision, which is going to be uh, standards of care eight, SOC eight, uh, and just kind of discuss our um, impressions thereof. Uh, so whoever wants to go, go first. Where do we start? (laughs) (laughs) A treasure. We just have a group scream. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had started um, just because of of how it's laid out, you know, with the the survey monkey, um, you know, they've they've separated all the chapters. So I started with with adolescent because I think that was at the top. And so when I first started reading the adolescent chapter, I was initially kind of hopeful um because though it wasn't maybe bold as bold as I as I wanted it to be it did touch on I think some important points I mean one of the significant changes they made was to extend um that diagnostic period you know that they, when they say that that it needs to um have demonstrated and documented gender nonconformity or gender incongruence it used to be six months and they they extended that to several years um in the context of you know, the, the spike in numbers of, of teen girls presenting to clinics, they did, they did mention that, they did mention Littman's study, they did kind of hint at, they didn't name ROGD, but they did hint at that social influenced aspect. Um, so I was initially kind of hopeful because that was my, my first dive into the standards of care and, and they were hinting on a lot of the talking points that we've been concerned about. But then I read the rest of it, and it kind of went down down from there. So I, I mean, I felt like that was probably the strongest chapter, and and other, and then other. So obviously, very different people were writing these different chapters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm really surprised they didn't mention ROGD because in the adolescent chapter, um, they actually do acknowledge that your adolescence is a time where you're no longer trying to impress the parents, but it's more peer influence where you try to impress your peers. And I think that that would have led very nicely into discussing about the surgeon ROGD. And I'm, I'm really surprised they didn't mention it, especially seeing as they mentioned Lisa Lippmann's study. Yeah, it's um, basically they sort of like Lippmann studies mentioned in the chapter, uh, but it's almost kind of like, you know, kind of, kind of criticized in a certain way. Um, And then like the way that uh, uh, they mention, (laughs) so they acknowledge the existence of, or the uh, extreme rise in um, uh, trans identifying young people, but they basically couch it in this way that, or, or spin it in a way that, oh, it turns out gender diversity is more common in youth than we previously thought. So they call it gender diversity. Um, and, and, and nowhere in, in the, here do we define gender diversity, uh, but they don't mention yet yeah, kind of uh, self-reports of, of gender um, uh, dysphoria. 
uh, or or the desire for transition, they just call it gender diversity. Therefore, like who's going to object to gender diversity? Oh, it's great that that more teenagers are feeling comfortable expressing gender diversity. That's not, you know, what the concerning aspect is. And that's also not what a medical body needs to weigh in on. What, what we want WPATH to weigh in on is, is the rise in, in youth seeking specifically medical transition care. And that's, that's the, you know, that, that's what obviously needs to be, be um, uh, addressed and is not. It's, it's just kind of, oh, it's gender diversity. That's great. We love gender diversity. It is interesting as well that it was in the adolescent chapter where they mentioned that people who are treating gender diverse youth, whatever the fuck that means, um, should have training in how to help people who have autism. Because, you know, we know that there's a a ridiculously high number of these young people who are identifying as trans um, happen to be autistic. And so they're they're acknowledging that in the chapter, but then they just move on and there's no like professional curiosity into, you know, should we be affirming these young autistic people? Maybe what if something else is going on? I mean, it, it doesn't sound to me like a clinically neutral professional wrote that chapter. It sounds like an activist wrote that chapter. It sounds like an activist wrote the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> because it doesn't, to me, it does not, it does not read like something health professionals would would put together it reads as something that people have that have a social and political agenda would put together yeah especially when i think it was was at age 14 they said was appropriate for uh, a child or teen rather uh, to start cross-sex hormones um Mm -hmm. and it's 14 yeah really that's coming from a professional and surgery under the age of 18 is appropriate now. I'm really glad that some of the people at Segum uh, have wrote an article and responded to this. And one of the things that I believe it was uh, Julia Mason pointed out was with something this important, it's, it's absolutely vital that all of the, the people in the profession agree on the terminology. How can you treat something if all the professionals are using different terminology? And the fact that the people at Segum are like, what does gender diverse even mean? What, what do all these terms mean? You haven't defined gender dysphoria. You haven't even defined what trans is. You have chapters on eunuchs, for Christ's sake. I mean, I, I have no idea how that is going to get through. And I know that they're saying that there, there's going to be a revision when it stops on December 16th. I have a horrible feeling they're barely going to change it and they're barely going to take any yeah, of the criticism. Yeah, and I also wonder, they're probably, this, this is as far as trans, like the kind of the radical side of the activist goes, this, this is moderate. And so I think they're even going to get input from more extreme uh, uh, activists basically saying, you know, that they haven't gone far enough. So they're going to hear from a bunch of people who are concerned about, you know, the healthcare of trans people or of treating gender dysphoria at all medically. They're going to get a gamut of, of input on this. And I think you're right. In the end, there's not, they're probably not going to change uh, a single thing. And I apologize, everybody. I got to put a pause in this. I, my computer's about to die. This was very irresponsible of me. I'll be right back. Yeah. <laughs> so, Let's just pause for a second, and I'll edit this out. Cool. Yeah. I hate it when stuff like that happens to me. It happens to me all the time in Zoom chats and stuff. And we're not live. It's all good. I know. You know. I know. I don't know if 
the intent was necessarily to go, you know, kind of section by section. I know that was just kind of laid out alphabetically, but I think maybe we should switch over to actually addressing that terminology section. I actually wanted to um, uh, read just just to give everybody a kind of a I know you guys have read it, but just to the audience who haven't, if they haven't, uh, just to give an, a sense of what this chapter is and, and kind of like, therefore, how the rest of the document is laid out. Uh, but I'm just going to read a couple of sentences here. It says in this document, we use the phrase transgender and gender diverse to be as broad and comprehensive as possible in describing members of the many varied communities globally of people with gender identities and expressions that differ from the gender socially attributed to the sex assigned to them at birth. This includes people who have culturally specific and or language specific experiences, identities, or expressions, and or that are not based on or encompassed by Western conceptualizations of gender or the language used to describe it. That's basically the rest, the rest of the document essentially, the rest of that chapter of terminology essentially says the exact same thing, which is this is way too broad to be useful to anybody at all right like it's there's pure there's, activist speak yeah 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 I, I mean when i click on something that tells me this is the chapter that talks about terminology i expect you know my my professional career is as a librarian i expect to see a glossary i expect to see definitions of terms i expect to see what is transgender what is gender diverse what is gender expression what is gender what exactly. is gender incongruence? None of that is defined. All it says is basically, we want as many people who want to be included in this group included. And so we are not going to do anything that would make somebody feel like they don't belong in this group, that they cannot seek this treatment that they are not to use, you know, the favorite term of a lot of people, valid. And my thing is that seems so incredibly opposite of the way I think about healthcare. To me, healthcare is all about you diagnose, you narrow down, you find, you know, what you are diagnosing a specific person with, you exclude all these other possibilities. Medical care is not necessarily designed to be inclusive because not all treatments are beneficial to all people that may want them. That's a really, really good point. Mm -hmm. And uh, as, as disappointing as the whole thing is, the two sort of red flags that immediately stuck out to me, because I always look for this when I read documents like this, is the use of the phrase assigned sex at birth. Uh, we all know your sex isn't assigned. That's activist speak right there. Your sex is observed. But the other thing is using the term transgender rather than patient with gender dysphoria. If you're using the term transgender, you're automatically assuming that that individual, including these kids, um, are going to benefit from transition. Whereas the the professional neutral way of talking it would be this patient has gender dysphoria and now we're going to evaluate and investigate and see what the best course of treatment would be reading the wpath documents especially the adolescence chapter i mean it, to me it sounds like they're basically saying transition the medical pathway and the 
that for gender diverse as well what what's a gender diverse gender diverse medical pathway so it's very much in line of transition is this beautiful thing that you know is if you want to transition you should just do it get your hormones at 14 get your surgeries at 17 are you kidding me it genuinely renders me speechless Mm -hmm. i mean i was i was initially um because i i had heard rumors that that this that the sock, I mean, this was going back months ago, but I heard rumors that they were going to be moving more in the direction of just pure informed consent. So I was kind of holding my breath thinking, okay, is this going to be like complete elimination of assessment and psychotherapy? So when I was reading the adolescent chapter, I think because my expectation was so low <laughs> upon opening this document that when I originally kind of read through that adolescent chapter, I mean, there's, there's hints, right? There's hints of points in there. It's almost like they've coded very subtly coded certain things in almost what we mean in the Twitter world, we call it dog whistles. I kind of thought, okay, they're touching on these things in a very subtle way, but they're touching on it. And then they're using that, that to justify comprehensive assessment. So it's great. I totally agree. Comprehensive assessment is really important, but if you haven't defined the clinical condition, comprehensive assessment becomes kind of meaningless because, you know, even if I am looking for those differential diagnoses like autism and stuff, if I don't know what the actual condition is, how do I determine a differential diagnosis? You need clarity about each individual diagnosis to then say, okay, well, it's not that, it's not that, it's not, you know, so the, the whole idea, it's, it's the whole document is working against itself, you know, all, all of the positives yeah. that they've coded in there are, are, um, undermined by the lack of clarity of what is what is this mysterious thing called incongruence like it's not normal yeah. i i really feel like i am male in some way and i've that's fixed i felt that since i was like three or two or three like as soon as i knew what boys and girls was i said i'm a boy that's not normal and i'm not saying oh gross it should, it's horrible and i should be locked up in a psychiatric institute but i'm saying that's not normal and you right. won't convince me that's normal and that then that 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 was such a distressing feeling you know by the time i entered into early adulthood it was such so distressing that i medicalized my body that's not normal you know right and so as someone who has experienced this condition i feel insulted mm-hmm. that i can't even say well i have this condition like it feels like a psychological gaslighting it feels like psychological abuse to have experienced a condition my entire life I've been medicalized for the last, I think it's been about 15 years. And they're saying, well, there's no condition like that. It, it, it's mind boggling to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- the impression I got because gender dysphoria was mentioned sparingly. Was it? Was it like, so it was, because- it was mentioned like two or three times as I was reading through it. Okay, and it depends uh, on the chapter what what terminology right. they're using. There's no there's no there's right. no coherence chapter to chapter, like Aaron was saying. Clearly written by by different people. Sorry, but go on, Janet. Uh, but also, they included and admitted gender euphoria. Uh, but again, the you know the main thing, the main focus was on this concept of gender incongruence. Now for most of my time before I transitioned and after, you know, whenever things like the Zucker studies were brought up about, you know, childhood desistance and that, we were always told, well, that's because 
the diagnosis was, you know, included so many people that were just gender nonconforming. Now, now we exclude all those people. Well, gender incongruence to me sure sounds like being gender nonconforming. And the way WPATH is wording all this and wanting to include everybody and you don't have to have dysphoria, you don't have to have a specific condition. What is that other than just being gender nonconforming? Well, they've turned gender, gender dysphoria, they focus on that dysphoria part, right? So, I mean, I think the people that wrote the DSM probably intended gender dysphoria to mean exactly what it meant when they said gender identity disorder, but they just softened the, let, the name of it to try to reduce stigma. But now people are saying, well, no, I mean, that's just, the dysphoria means distress. So, it, it, so they're saying, well, it, the gender dysphoria isn't actually the condition that causes the incongruence. It's just the distress you feel as a result of as a result of the incongruence and a result of how people are interacting with you. So, so they're saying that the actual incongruence itself isn't a disorder. That's just part of natural dis- diversity. I mean, that's, that's so disturbing because if you can't acknowledge something as a condition, then that would, to me, sounds like it would jeopardize access to treatment. You know, you don't treat people who don't have a condition. You treat people who have conditions and people such as yourselves who had gender dysphoria and transitioned and were treated from the condition. I mean, I don't know how you guys could read this document and not be absolutely furious. Why would you give medical treatment to someone, including children and adolescents, if there's no condition to treat? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're framing it as just bodily autonomy, that we just have yeah. the right to do whatever we want with our bodies. So I guess, I guess all endocrinologists out there should write guidelines for diabetes saying anyone that wants insulin should just be allowed to have it. Well, what it is, and insur- in my country where we don't have universal health care, what, what insurance provider is going to read this document and be like, yeah, we should definitely pay for this shit? No. <laughs> well, and the <laughs> thing that it is, because it is mentioned a few places within the document that, you know, yes, these are the guidelines that we are giving, but in places where there's socialized medica- medical uh, care or like for us in the US insurance, that there might be additional guidelines or additional criteria that people have to go through. But basically what the impression I got from reading the WPATH document is if you are capable and willing to pay for it yourself, you should get whatever transition related healthcare you want which makes it to me nothing more than saying being trans is cosmetic. How many years did we all fight against this concept that what we did to our bodies is simply cosmetic surgery? What, you know, what makes me wanting to have breast implants any different from a woman that isn't happy being an A cup? Mm-hmm. It's just cosmetic surgery. And to me, if you have taken away any need, any criteria for a problem that is being solved by transition, it is, it is cosmetic. That's all it is. 
speaking of surgery and and what uh, Watson had mentioned earlier with uh, the whole assigned at birth language, the surgery chapter is almost comical to read when you think about it because they're saying this is the surgery that's needed or these are the surgeries that are needed if you were assigned male at birth or these are all the surgeries necessary if you were assigned female at birth. It's like if it was simply an assignment, then like it just it may, like foundationally the, the the language just falls flat on its face and is, it is actually hilarious to read darkly darkly hilarious to read that you know these are all the surgeries you need if you are incorrectly assigned uh you know this this one sex it's like the necessity of the or necessity of the surgeries in itself is evidence that it wasn't an assignment but is you know physical reality anyway that was that how was, many how many more communities can we piss off like we, we pissed <laughs> off we pissed off the dsd community for completely appropriating you know our medical conditions for the trans you know the trans um ideology and you know people with um autism who are in advocacy groups are saying, you know, queer theory has completely infiltrated the, you know, autism advocacy groups now and, and completely infiltrated DSD groups and completely, so it's just, it's taking but, over and it, it, you're right that it's the, collecting people. But the yeah. unit community loves us now. <laughs> how, how, oh. how many people, how many people before this week knew that there was a unit community? I didn't know there was a unit community. <laughs> And citing no citing no castration fetish. Do you see the references for that chapter? Yeah. Like they're reference, like they're novels, like castration fetish novels, as references for that chapter. Well, like yeah. a, like like erotica. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, and, and mean, the link they posted a link right yeah. in the text. The, There's the, a link the, to the, uh, erotica site. Yeah, the entire, you know, the entire concept that they uh, basically cited comes from some website where they said, you know, there are 130,000 uh, self-identified eunuchs or eunuch identified people uh, in this, you know, one, one community and they have X number of posts and this, you know, this many people participating. And I'm like, you literally, this, the supposed professional organization, you're citing weirdos on the internet. That's what, that's what that's what you're doing. You are citing people on the internet that have found each other for a similar interest. Except the transitioners. Yeah. Oh yeah, we, we, we don't get a mention because <laughs> yeah, no, we don't yeah. fucking exist. Yeah. You're, you're re-transitioners now. I'm a retrans, I'm super trans. Yeah. <laughs> you're just picking I'm a new gender. Here, How do you feel about that language, by the way? Like the idea that you're not, you're not, detransitioning that you're just retransitioning to a new gender now uh well it's ridiculous but i mean i only refer to myself as a detransitioner in this sort of context where it's relevant to the topic and like my day-to-day -day life i'm just a woman like i'm not a detrans woman but for something like w path it's important to talk about detransition and desistance because it's a possible outcome and the thing with desistance like we know the vast majority of children desist if they're left alone. We, that's not up for debate. The last study that I read, it was 88% of boys. And it's like, if that it's so prevalent, why did that not have a chapter in and of itself? Because desistance yeah. and detransition is obvious. Well, desistance is the best outcome. Detransition is the worst outcome. And then the happy medium that you hope is that transition for those who do it will help them and alleviate their dysphoria. 
but they're, they're all should have equal amounts of coverage in this document and assistance and detransition get nothing. That yeah. should be a massive red flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's also politically worded. It's also just the, the big net catch as many as possible and ignore any, um, you know, any negative outcomes. Um, yeah. And it's not like it was a single study about this distance. I think there's like what something like seven studies and they all say the exact same thing. The, the, the figures are a little bit different. So I think it ranges for something yeah. like something like 67% to 98% distance in, in children, but they all say the same thing. And that's a real big omission in this because they did yeah. they did say, they did reference those studies in SOC 7. So that's a, that's a significant mm-hmm. omission in SOC 8 that they, they just neglected all of those studies, even though you're right, the latest one is from this year, 2021 well, to 88% assistance rate. How, I haven't seen that study. How was that conducted when when watch and wait is essentially no longer an option. Like what country facilitated this study where children were actually allowed to grow out of their. They're all older studies. So the, the 2021 um, is a long-term cohort study. So they use the diagnostic criteria of gender identity disorder because, because it's like a continuation of the older study. So they had to use the same that's my interpretation of it anyways, that they had to use the same diagnostic criteria as the original study, and this was a follow-up study, um, so that it's, it's capturing a, a longer-term outcome. Okay. Okay. I mean, if I could say something that may potentially offend people, um, like what you were saying, Aaron, earlier about how you know having this condition and feeling like you were born wrong or that you wanted to be the opposite sex isn't normal, which is why it's a condition, which is why it requires treatment. But I mean, like desistance is something that should definitely be on the table because it is the ideal outcome. If transition works out for someone, obviously that's really good. But if you could have the option to have a teenager who accepts themselves and finds comfort and uh, like n- no longer distress in their own body, obviously that's better than them persisting in their distress and having to go through a medical pathway, which comes with risks. So I think like, Desistance is the big one here. I know you guys probably thought I'd be more pissed off about the detransition thing, but I actually think it's desistance. And if it's not included or mentioned in the revision, that's uh, pe- this is going to do so much harm. That's the big yeah. thing here. Yeah. And then it, it keeps coming back to what is your definition of gender dysphoria? Because if we understand and I know not everyone buys the typology. I don't think the typology is perfect. I don't think it's complete. But if we use that as like a starting point to understand gender dysphoria, when we're talking about children, because those desistance studies not only say the majority desist, it also says the majority of those kids are gay. So if we think, if we use, if we use this concept of homosexual transsexualism, that there's something about being gay or lesbian is part of that developmental pathway of being gay that a lot of us feel like have some sort of some degree of cross-sex identification as children and a lot of adult gay and lesbian people will say this they would say well yeah when I was a kid I was very gender non-conforming and I was a sissy boy and I wear my mom's dresses and so a lot of gay and lesbian people adults say yes I can confirm that that I was very girly as a boy or very masculine as a as a girl or tomboy or whatever and then I became a gay, gay or lesbian and outgrew that some of us don't but so with that narrative based on the topology it makes total sense with the desistance studies 
that most of these kids outgrow it, you know, like Stella O'Malley, who didn't end up being a lesbian, but, you know, these, these kids, there are people stepping forward saying, yes, I was one of that 88% that had this childhood gender dysphoria, and, and I, I outgrew it through the process of puberty. But if you have a framework that isn't evidence-based and doesn't actually understand what gender dysphoria is, and your worldview is, well, there's just trans people and that's just an, an innate, then it doesn't, the whole, the whole idea of desistance doesn't make sense to their worldview. And, and so, because they can't figure out where to place that in their worldview, they've just omitted it and just disregarded all of that research. Yeah. yeah you've mentioned earlier, like among the groups that we're angering as, um, you know, autistic people, people with DSD and things like that, the big one is gays and lesbians. Um, that's why you've got places like the LGB Alliance forming because the, the fear is we are basically trans and gay children. And, you know, obviously not everyone who suffers from gender dysphoria happens to be gay or lesbian, but a lot of them are. And that's per particularly relevant with the desistance rates that we've been talking about. But, but that wasn't mentioned? Are you no. kidding me? It wasn't. Well, they don't even mention dysphoria. So the, how can they mention, you know, <laughs> it resolving, you know? Yeah. Like they, hint, they hinted at it. They hinted at it. Again, it was a lot more clear in SOC 7 because in SOC 7, they very clearly said the vast majority of these kids desist. It was very clear. So this document is, you're right, it's more political. I get the sense right. that there is a major division within WPATH where there are some clinicians that hinted at these things, probably because that's the most they could get away with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there were references here and there because, like, I remember. I believe there actually was something in uh, the childhood uh, chapter that did actually mention about studies or the idea that affirming a, uh, a gender diverse identity or however you want to phrase it uh, could potentially strengthen uh, that identity which I think a lot of us have said, you know, periodically that that, you know, that that's one of the reasons why some of us don't like the idea of social transition is because it just allows, you know, it allows that person to permeate in that identity. It becomes a real thing. So like there was a mention of it, but it was basically like, oh, we acknowledge that this is possible and then just moved on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even this idea of affirming one's gender, they don't define gender. What are they talking about? Are they talking about mm -hmm. stereotypes? Are they talking about pink for girls and blue for boys? Are they talking about this sort of cerebral idea that only some people have? Because we know not everyone has a gender identity. Just go and speak to the radical feminist, you'll hear, hear all about that. So, I mean, you, you've written this document to help people, to help trans people, and you, you can't even say what gender even is. Sure. Yeah, they, they well, even even in the terminology chapter, they kind of kind of explain the fact that they don't define gender because it 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 varies around the world. It's right. like yeah. Well, to me, one of the places that made it very clear why this is a social uh, plan or whatever, however you want to say it, was their. Um, the part of the epidemiology where they were talking about statistics and you know determining who you know the you know the the population that's included um, that was very illuminating to me 
because they they talked about the three ways that they looked at finding the statistics. You had statistics that came from medical studies, and then you had statistics that came from self-reported identification studies for adults, and statistics that came from self-reported studies uh, of children and adolescents. Now, because of the way they framed things, like the, the medical studies, I think they only referred to percentage of transgender people. Because, so I believe to some extent, they're trying to basically say people that have sought medical treatment fall into the category of transgender, uh, but the gender diverse people don't necessarily. So those percentages were something like 0.02% to 0.1% of the population. For those that, you know, math isn't their thing, that means one out of ten, every 10,000, excuse me, two out of every 10,000 to one out of every thousand people. That sounds relatively reasonable to me based on how I understand things. I don't have the chapter right in front of me, but I remember that the percentage for transgender and gender diverse children and adolescents got as high as one, excuse me, as far as high as 8.4% of the population. So you're telling me almost not, almost nine out of every hundred children fall into this category. That's ridiculous. interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and so to me, this proves we want as many people as possible. We want as many people because then we're a bigger group. We have more social and political influence. We have more visibility. You know, I mean, I mean, let's face it. We used to say, you know, we used to say lesbians, gays, and bisexuals were one out of every ten. And now we say trans people are basically the same thing. No, you cannot tell me that that many more people have a medical need for something. That's probably why they have included gender diversity, because if you're just talking about trans people, the number is going to appear absolutely tiny compared to if you include gender diversity which is not defined, but you guys know what I mean. Gender, yeah. the incongruence, and, you know, tomboys. You know, are we going to include them in there? It's just uh, going through all the... We could sit here for hours and go through all of those chapters, and I swear to God, my eyes would just roll into the back of my head. From what I have seen, I haven't been able to read every word, um, but I, I didn't see anything that I didn't have an issue with, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's so vague. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it's so incredibly vague. And then uh, just 
the 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 eunuch the going back to what what you're saying Janet about the numbers here and trying to include as many people as possible I had this uh, and and forgive me if this sounds conspiratorial at all but but I think this is what's going on here is with the eunuch chapter what they're doing is right now we have a lot of a lot of teenage boys who may have some degree or another of AGP or um, for whatever reason feel that they they um, would be better off. Uh, living as women, and you know the, the, the you know getting getting SRS essentially, um, and in a lot of cases, you know as, as soon as they have that surgery, have their testicles removed, you know with it that goes the desire to live and present as a woman in a lot of cases, and now it's like oh that's cool don't worry about it now now you're part of the unit community. Um, and that's what that sounds like to me is like a net to catch people who have been, it's like what this, the gender nullification surgeries, um, oh, I'm surprised that, that those aren't included in here more. I mean, they, they talk about, yeah, it's like eunuch is, is included or it's a, a category it, of that, I would say, but like that gender nullification surgery, which it was actually the in there. Okay. Okay. Which they were advertising to people who have had phallioplasties, right? So, so people who essentially want to undo their phallioplasty can now have this, this genital nullification surgery. And, and I think what they're trying to do with like retransition and that verbiage and the eunuchs, the nullification is essentially a net to catch the people who have been badly harmed by medical, by surgical transition. Um, is like you're still within the fold. You're a eunuch. You're a, a non-binary, nullified, whatever, a retransitioner. Um, I, I think I think it's it's like even even to capture those who would otherwise be um, not just no longer fall into the chant into the trans umbrella, but would be are quite uh, you know uh, negative towards the treatment that they received. Um, and now and now 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 the W path can just. Oh, we've got we got them as well. They're still in our ranks. They're still part of the trans community. I know that sounds really cynical and dark, but well, uh, that's like what I keep reading into this. Okay. Well, what are what are your opinions on the fact and I that they are now saying there is no need for social transition prior to having surgery. And the mm, example clearly that, a nightmare. And yeah. the example because the example that was given was a assigned male at birth, so a male person that wants to continue to present as a man, but surgically wants a vagina. And they should they should be able to have that surgery that surgery should be able to be approved for them. So, I mean, I, I meant when I mentioned that uh, the other day, a friend, of, you know, a friend of mine basically said, oh yeah, I, I, I know a guy that has a trans man fetish. He would love, he would love that. He, he would love to basically have that. And I'm like, I, you know, I, I try as much as possible to argue you know, for single sex spaces and reasons why, you know, trans women shouldn't use women's spaces and that, you know, and the one, the one exception I can somewhat ethically argue for is, you know, like cases of nudity because of changes that we have made for, to our bodies. 
But the thing of it is, if you are negating any need of a social change, then to me, that all goes away. Yeah. Yeah, well, there, you, you, know, you guys know, like, the whole point of the social transition or the way it was referred to when I was doing it was the lived experience was you, yep. you were testing to see if you were comfortable living that way. So if you take away the need for social transition, how do you know you're not just flinging hormones and surgeries at someone who, who's making a mistake? You know, these safeguards have always been in place to prevent stuff like that. And the other thing is I don't know how they can complain about how long the waiting lists are when they're shoehorning so many people who aren't trans <laughs> yeah. under the umbrella. If you think the waiting times are long now, how long are they going to get when all the eunuchs are joining in and all of the people with castration fetuses are joining in? Like, I don't know how long the waiting lists are in your respective countries, but in Scotland right now it's three or four years. Like, that's ridiculously long. And these waiting times are only going to get longer if we just include in everyone in it. The social, yeah, the social gatekeeping aspect. I mean, the, the gay and lesbian community fought so hard to earn civil rights and, and change people's perceptions that we're not just a bunch of perverts and we're not coming after your children and we're not trying to recruit. We're not, this isn't all about sex and fetishes. And I feel like the queer community has gone in the complete opposite direction. Let's normalize every fetish you can imagine. Let's actually glorify them and put them out on display and, and let's recruit your children. It, it's so counterproductive. It completely dismantles everything that we've been working for over the last 40 years or so. And isn't it amazing how quickly that happened? I mean, gays and lesbians and bisexuals and transsexuals were fighting for their rights for decades and within the matter of what, like less than 10 years, probably about five years, acceptance for LGBT people has plummeted. And it's because of this. Yeah. We all just sit here and seethe for a minute. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I worry about just going back to the, like the, uh, continuing on the, like the social gatekeeping theme. I mean, I would be horrified as a parent if one of my children has, you know, legitimate gender dysphoria and, you know, sought treatment for it. And, and now what kind of community are we sending these kids into if, if it's all just sort of a mixed bag of, you know, fetishes and legitimate dysphoria and we're just kind of throwing them all together, you know, because I remember early in my transition, I was attending some su support groups and stuff. So, you, you know, you, it is helpful yeah. to have community support, but what does this community look like now? Like I, I'm right. concerned about what we're, what we're exposing kids to, what we're throwing them into as, as you know, healthy social socialization. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, the three of us, you know, Aaron, Aaron and I, you know, we did this as adults. And when we entered those communities, it was as an adult and we had lived experiences that allowed us to have some critical uh, eye of what was going on around us. And I think all of us to some extent have admitted that, yeah, you get into those spaces and you start drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit and you know, you're told, oh, a trans woman is anyone that says they're a woman. I'm like, okay, well, 
I don't want anyone to say I'm not a woman, so sure. Uh, and then, but then because we've had the experiences that we've had, we're able to eventually kind of start figuring out where things aren't feeling right and figuring out like, okay, this person that I'm dealing, that I'm talking with right now, I'm not getting a good feeling from, or I'm not feeling like their experience of dysphoria or their experience of why they're here aligns with my expectations. You know, for, you know, for example, because I, you know, I don't know if this happened to you guys, but like on Facebook, as soon as like I changed my profile and I started posting all these trans things and you want, you know, you want trans friends, you want to, you know, be part of a community. So you get, start getting these friend requests from other trans people. And you're like, accept, 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 yay, more trans people. And then I talk to some of them and I'm like, you're, you know, you're just really, you know, you're trying to fetishize what I'm going through. You're, you know, you want, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many, how many times I have been contacted by supposed trans women that are like, you know, you know, make me into what you are. And I'm like, no, why don't, I don't want, you know, why would I want to do that? I mean, <laughs> You know, if I could have, if I could have gotten through my, my life without doing this to myself, I wouldn't have. Why would I, you know, why would I mold you into this? Not to mention the fact that, I mean, look at me. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's not like I, you know, I'm not going out on you know, RuPaul's Drag Race. I'm not, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not this, you know, vision of femininity that, you know, you seem to want to be emulating because that's not reality. That's not, you know, that's not real life. And along, just along those lines of just that, that emulation part, there was, there was a tweet that was going around over the last couple of days. I guess there's this, I'm always learning about new genres of porn, but I guess there's this new, <laughs> I guess there's this new, there's this genre of porn. It's animated porn um, using DSD bodies so intersex bodies that aren't even realistic it's like it's like bodies with like fully functioning like both sex right, organs it's, so it's, it's that's the, not really it's not a realistic portrayal of, of of intersex bodies but so there's someone that was saying well I've really I'm really into this kind of porn and um and that's what kind of got me thinking well that's uh, that's kind of hot and and I want so now people can actually identify as intersex and receive these surgeries in order to be intersex. Well, who read the intersex? I didn't read the intersex because now that's that's a that's a chapter within the sock. Did anybody read the intersex chapter? I glanced at it. I, f I found it a little bit confusing. It was almost. Um, it, it was almost like you know, you know some you know some people that are intersex can still identify as gender diverse or trans and like. yeah it talks about how intersex people are are more likely than people without dsds to experience gender dysphoria 
but I, I almost felt like this whole chapter was just an excuse to kind of assert a little bit of uh, biological biological sex teaching because it, the chapter opens by saying um, uh, intersex is a term grounded in the binary system of sex underlying um, mammalian, including human reproduction. And I thought, well, that's a bold statement. So I kind of wondered, is this whole intersex chapter just an excuse, you know, for 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 um, for one side of this debate to say, well, here's our opportunity to assert that biological sex is a binary, right? Okay. Well, and you know, Aaron, going back to your thing about the porn, um, you know, I'll even extend that to the lives we live on the internet as a whole. Uh, I don't know how many of you saw the posts about um, the uh, the YouTube video blogger or whatever it was that you know basically used a animated uh, anime pinup as their avatar. And when they started, you know, they were like, yeah, I identify as a femboy or I'm a femboy, basically meaning I'm a man that likes to, you know, present femininely, pretend, you know, basically cross-dress as a image of a young, hot woman. Uh, but they did not identify as a trans woman. They did not want to transition or anything like that. But they started this YouTube channel where they were using this completely computer-generated image to represent themselves. They were being told, you know, how beautiful they were. They were getting so much, you know, acceptance and, you know, adoration when people thought that they were this woman that now they've decided, yeah, I am, I am a trans woman. And, you know, we've created a culture where we're allowed to have this avatar that we, that some people unfortunately, I think convince themselves that they actually are. You know, I mean, I realize that it gets to be kind of just a random insult, you know, insult to talk about the TRAs that are, you know, random anime images on Twitter. But the fact of the matter is, how many of them have we come across that we interacted with, you know, that will swear up and down, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a woman, I'm a woman, I'm a trans woman, everyone in my life sees me as a woman. And then you find out they have done nothing to transition. They I think have you're built... absolutely right, Jana. And like yeah. the, the porn topic can make people very uncomfortable sometimes, but it is really important because, yeah. you know, Stella O'Malley has been speaking about, she's seeing an increasing number of young AGPs and her um, sort of assumption from talking to these young boys, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, is that porn addiction led them to believe that they were women and that the thought yeah. of being women aroused them. And then there's the, the detransitioners that I've spoken to, um, detrans women, so former trans men, who say that they basically convinced themselves that they were gay men because mm -hmm. they got addicted to, to gay porn. 
Um, and then, you know, this whole eunuch thing, obviously that's coming from a place where there's the castration fetish. And just, I'd, I think that porn plays a very massive role oh, in it does. what's happening today. And again, you don't see that being discussed openly, mm-hmm. do you? It's people like us yeah. that talk about it because we've seen it. Yeah. I think uh, it's fairly strange, like, that with the eunuch chapter, they're not even really hiding the fact that that eunuch chapter is about castration fetishes. I mean, when they're linking to sites that have castration fetish literature, like they're not hiding that fact that this this whole chapter is dedicated to a fetish, but they won't mention AGP or any other fetish. Right. Like I, I find that really puzzling, like why they would sort of openly acknowledge and and validate one fetish, but not another. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I didn't read the entirety. I, I, got, I got a bad taste in my mouth about uh, two pages into the eunuch chapter and was like, okay, I'm moving on to a different one here. Um, but they're, so I, I want to reread that because um, it's pretty, they're pretty explicit about the fact that it's sexually motivated. It's not about wanting to be like non-binary or wanting to be, um, you know, sexually neutralized. It's, it, it, they're pretty clear that it's kind of, that it's, it's a sexual obsession. It's, it's clear. It's clear, it's clear by the references. I don't think they they say that explicitly right. in the chapter itself, but they. But they, they that's a fetish you can to. only live out once, and then and then there's no more. Like short sighted. No, the surgeons are thinking we have this perpetual surgery here. Like we can do, you know, right. implants, and then we can remove them again, and we can do implants. Oh. Well, and I mean, think of how much money they'll make. Well, and I mean, they do. I mean, they do even go so far as to make a distinction between the fact that eunuch identified people are different from people that go through the procedure because of prostate cancer or some other thing that would necessitate the removal of their testicles. But I mean, so for example, to me, you know, like like you said, Aaron, you know, they're, they're linking to a site that, you know, has a, has a lot of self-contributed porn and stories that are of a very sexual nature. Just like, for example, if somebody were to do a, do a chapter uh, on, you know, uh, male to female transitioners and they linked to a website that had a lot of stories of a sexual nature of you know people that wanted to transition and it was like see there's yeah you know, there's all these people that want to transition well same thing it's just the fact that they want to hide one <laughs> and they're actually using one as a reference you know, I mean, you know, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's a bit s- silly. And I mean, I, you know, cause I mean, I think we can, you know, I think we can find that even within, you know, some of our trans spaces, I know some of the online places that I initially sought out it was a little bit more broad in what was included. So, you know, it was, you know, you had sections for transsexuals, but you also had sections for cross-dressers. And, you know, there were, you know, there was overlap. I mean, 
you search, you know, you search Amazon for books about being transgender and you get a whole lot of self-published porn <laughs> about mm-hmm. transition. Yeah, because they link here. So first of all, they say that there's a 4,000 year history of Unix. Um, first of all, I mean, yes, it's true. There's a 4,000 year old use of, of the word Unix, but it means something completely different in that historical context. It was, yeah. it was largely slaves were being forced, forced castrated in order to look after harems within um, within these royal communities, so it was it was it wasn't about a fetish. It was it was a form was of, of slavery. <laughs> um, but then they so that in itself is false. This, they're just appropriating a historical um, phenomenon, and then they say. Um, a wealth of information about contemporary eunuch identified people is found within the large online peer support community that congregates on sites such as Unic Archive. So it's right, right in, so it's not even in the, the references, it's right in the text. They've got this link to www.unic.org. And when you open that up, it says there's, there's a fiction archive. So that fiction archive is all castration fetish. Wow. Fiction. And there's pedophilic links in it as well. Apparently some of the stories um, include minors. I don't doubt that. And that's and that's historically, you know, when like, you know, if you're talking about uh, the Castrati of, you know, a famous, you know, more more well-known uh, example right. of, of, of Unix is typically done pre pre-pubertal so that they, um, uh, yeah, don't don't fully mature. Um, and that was about yeah. maintaining their singing voice. And it, yeah. it wasn't necessarily <laughs> something that they thought, yay, this is going to be a fun thing to do. But it was probably, you know, very poor families. If they had a family member that had this beautiful singing voice and could make something of themselves, it was worth it to them to, to castrate themselves so that they could, they could continue to have a music career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, even if there was a 4,000 year history of Unix in the sense that they're talking about, what the hell does that have to do with trans people? Yeah, and why is it in a document about trans healthcare? Like I, I've been racking my head about some kind of defense of this, and I honestly can't think of one. Yeah, the only thing that I can think of is capturing those post SRS and the MTF post SRS regretters. Is like, mm-hmm. oh, now you're now you're part of this unit community. Don't worry about it. Yeah, so we, we've put been a chapter so hard. about Unix and then leave detransitioners out. I know. <laughs> yeah. But but they have an online community. Oh wait, so do do transitioners? Don't talk about <laughs> so that. It's so, it's so bizarre. Uh, we don't so exist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've we've tried so hard. You know, like I said about the you know the the gay and lesbian community. But even as a trans community, we've tried so hard to earn civil rights based on this. Like, you know, the the premise that yes, we have this condition, but we're still productive members of society. That we're not just fetishists and and pedophiles and and then here they go they include in you know a whole chapter on on fetish with links to pedophilia porn like so it's it's really counterproductive i think to to trying to secure a place for ourselves in society i mean i as a young as a young adult i was involved um in pride marches and stuff and I remember some of those really early, like in the early, I guess, 1991, 1990 to 1993, I was in Winnipeg and marched in some of the, the marches. And it wasn't like a pride parade like we see now. It was, Winnipeg's a small city, so it was maybe like 100 people with homemade placards just marching down a street. 
and we had um, skinheads in their black vans circling around us to intimidate us, you know. So, so we've come a long way as far as civil civil liberties for gay and lesbian people. And I remember how how unsafe it felt back in even the early '90s. But I have never felt as harassed and hated as I do now. Like the last couple of years in particular. Uh, I've never had to worry about being doxxed. I've never had to worry about people calling my employers to make up shit about me like this. I feel far less safe now than, than I ever have. I've heard a well, lot of trans people say that. Yeah. But Aaron, is that, is that because you're trans or is that because of the views that, you know, we're, we are holding that people are disagreeing with? Well, it's both, right? Because it's become so polarized that the absolute, idiotic trans politics are driving more and more hatred. So when you, you know, as, as fairly kind of moderate people come forward saying, look, like this isn't, this isn't right. I want to carve out space for myself as a moderate. I reject this radical ideology on, on both extremes. We're getting attacked from both sides. Like it, we, we're getting the worst of the attack is coming from within the trans community. Mm -hmm. And, and the, but we're also, you know, in order to come out and say, okay, let's find solutions. Let's be reasonable adults here and just talk things out and find solutions so that everyone is safe and we can just get on with our lives. For us to come out and do that, we're getting transphobia on one end of the spectrum and, and we're getting doxxed and harassed by, by the trans community because they, they don't want a, mar a moderate or evidence-based yeah. Um, position either so it's just it's an absolute nightmare well and i mean i i really do think you know if if we follow the wpath standards and what their implications are to their you know logical end i've you know, i've i've often said that the end result of all this is we're still going to be fighting about who is a man and who is a woman. It's just the fact of the extremes on each end, you know, have, you know, basically, so the extremes on the gender critical end would look at me go and go, you're a man with breasts and an artificial vagina. The extremes on the TRA side uh, will say you're a woman, but then also tell me that a woman can be a biological male that still has a beard and has done nothing to transition and still has a penis. So you basically are saying, you know, a man is a man or a woman is, you know, any physical entity, you know, you're just disagreeing on which entities those are. And like, so like when I was reading this whole thing about, you know, you don't have to do any so social transition to get these surgeries. My honest reaction was at this point, why not just say, my name is Janet. I'm a man that has a body that looks more female than the average man. 
And however you want to refer to me, go ahead. Because on a societal level, how do, how do we function with this? How do we function when you have people that now socially want to be seen as and treated as men, but fully expect to have female bodies and treated 100% in that way, even whether those, whether those female bodies are natural or surgically created? And same thing with, you know, same thing with male bodies. Now, this whole idea of, you know, the TRAs love to post, you know, post-op pictures of, you know, very passable trans people and say, you know, do you want them in this space? Well, at this point, what's, you know, is there even a difference? I think I think those of us kind of in gender dysphoria alliance um, and are kind of heavily involved in this conversation have kind of made our peace with the fact that we are just males or females who have cosmetically altered ourselves to appear as the opposite sex. So we if we're all in this, like we we understand that we've all kind of undid undone the programming and have embraced that reality. Um, and I feel like this document is just educating everybody else that that is all that this is, is this is an aesthetic choice that some people make. And it's really counterintuitive to the to the activists um, uh, intentions, I feel like when, when when medical institutions get a hold of this document, I'm sure they already have it. But like, if this is if this is published as the official standards of care for WPATH, don't you guys think that that's just going to pique, you know, the the entire medical establishment, insurance providers that that gender dysphoria, transition, trans healthcare, these are not legitimate things. Like this is this is delegitimizing the entire industry. Yeah, is what I it, see. It, it, it's extreme body modification at this point. I think that's why I was so surprised that they included a unique chapter because we all know that sort of the the activisty types they, they they can say some insane things, but I mean, including a chapter on eunuchs with a link to a website like the Eunuch Archive and the WPATH uh, standards of care. I mean. Like that, there's no damage control there though at all. Like they must know that so many people are going to read that and go, "What the hell were you thinking?" Like that chapter more than they're all ridiculous. But the unit chapter itself is, like you said, is absolutely going to peak so many people. And if this is the compromise, like if this is the, because knowing what we know about there's, there's, I think there's a pretty deep divide within WPATH. I don't think WPATH is is a united organization. When you have, I mean, Dr. Zucker is still part of WPATH, as far as I know. So, so it's very divided. If this is their compromise, that means one side is even crazier than this. You know what I mean? Because I think this yeah. is a document yeah. that tried to kind of come, you know, to a compromise between these sort of warring factions. And I mean, I, I kind of shudder to think of what would this document have looked like if it weren't for the more science-based side of WPATH, what would this have looked like? Would have been full of, probably full of informed consent and including all of this stuff, right? Oh, yeah, I think it how- would have included surgery for children. That's what I think their next push will be. Yeah. What I can't help but think is that is that people like people who encounter this document, they're going to first go to the terminology 
chapter, um, which I hope is not going to be published in its current state. It's four pages that basically say nothing. It's the shortest, as far as I can tell, the absolute shortest uh, section of the of the standards of care, and and it and it says nothing. So so you know I think I think I think certainly medical providers are going to first look to the terminology chapter to find out how these things are being defined and how it's all being laid out and realize it's absolutely meaningless nonsense. Like this, nothing is being said here. Um, and I think like once you read, read the terminology chapter, you can effectively throw out the entire document. It, it's, it's meaningless. But then, but then there are, there are details, you know, certainly there's some, some really kind of a uh, little bit more specific guidelines in the child and adolescent chapter. But even then, if you read like the ones where, where they're like saying out the statements of we think this and we we recommend this, it's all we recommend or we suggest. There's nothing that's actually even saying this is what you should do. This is how you should treat this condition. Or if this, then this. Nothing. It's just we suggest this. But if the patient tells you they don't want to go that way, then, you know, that don't do that. You know, it's like none of so even if you get down into the meat of the chapters, it's still meaningless. The, the document serves no purpose whatsoever because, you know, even in the most specific and direct, it's still saying we just suggest this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not even trying. I mean, I get I, in my mind, I keep going back to the fact that they haven't even defined the condition that I have. Like I feel as someone with lifelong gender dysphoria, I feel abandoned by, by WPATH. Yeah. This, is, this is the organization that is supposed to represent my interests and the treatment of a condition that I have. And I feel like they've completely abandoned, abandoned that mission. I don't know who is looking at what is gender dysphoria and what is you know best treatment and, and really starting to clarify that because the standards of care, you should see more and more clarity over time, not, not yeah. less and less clarity. I mean, I would think that since 2012, since SOC 7 mm-hmm. was written, there has been quite a bit of research, you know, since then on looking at what is gender dysphoria, you know, genetic studies and MRI studies. And I don't think- Certainly more data collected from individuals presenting with it, you know? Absolutely. And not that they've necessarily, deter- you know, landed on any anything specific, but they've certainly have done a lot of research and they, they could at least discuss and analyze that research. I mean, that, that would be, I think, a chapter all to itself of just looking at what is our current state of evidence for, for what trans is. And, and they've, completely, they've completely neglected that. And I, so I just feel completely abandoned and betrayed by, by the organization. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever reached a point where I wanted to walk away more than I am right now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I really am at a point where it's like, should I just walk away, go back to quietly leaving, you know, living my life, and you know, just pack it in and be, you know, be happy with the fact that I personally benefited from being able to do this, and that's all that matters to me. The reason why it's important you don't do that and to Aaron and Aaron as well is because if all of the reasonable trans people who believe in evidence-based care decide to walk away because they've had enough, then the reasonable voices will be gone and all that the the rest of the world will see are the crazies. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as someone, you know, transition didn't work out for me, but if the reasonable voices go away, because we know it worked out for you guys, if your voices go away, then I can see people getting sick and tired of the crazies and basically the whole public turning against every trans person. 
which is already, already starting seen, to happen. I'm already seeing starts start uh, parts of it. So please don't walk away. You three are very, very needed now more than ever, as well as uh, the other members of GDA. This is this is like the second blow in a row in that I think all of us were expecting the International Olympic Committee to come back with something better than what we had before for inclusion of trans people in professional sports. And instead, what did we get? Well, we're just gonna punt it and everyone has to figure out what's gonna be best for themselves. We're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna have any requirements anymore unless you guys fund it yourselves and make decisions. And now I feel like the same with WPATH. It's like, rather than making things more concrete, giving more guidance, more structure, more understanding, Everyone's basically going, do whatever the hell you want. Whatever makes you feel good is how we should, how we should handle things. So we, I think we probably have some, some listeners or, or viewers that are looking for a bit of guidance because their path is still open to some feedback for an, another few days anyway, until the 16th at mm-hmm. midnight, yeah, I think. Um, so about, yeah, about a week. Um, so if there were some like major highlights, if anyone's looking for guidance on what feedback to give WPATH, what would be kind of your top points? If we can maybe come up with like five top points. One of them is absolutely the inclusion of desistance. Um, talking about uh, the studies, the evidence that we have that most children do desist. Um, obviously, I would like a mention of detransition in there as well. But if that can't make it in, desistance absolutely must. They're going to have to address the care of, of people who detrans at some point, right? Like, what are what are all of the medical and, and psychological considerations to, to properly support people? So that absolutely deserves its own chapter to yeah. talk about resources, supports, medical procedures. I mean, I don't even know how many surgeons are doing reversal procedures. I know the, the ones in Serbia have advertised that they are, but not many are advertising that they offer those services. So absolutely, that deserves a chapter assistance absolutely i mean those that's not i don't think that's debatable i mean there's like i said there's several studies it's not like it's one outlier study out there it's multiple studies all saying the same thing so yeah those i totally agree with those two points and defining the condition how can you have medical guidelines to have the treatment of a condition that you refuse to define they need yeah. to completely redo their terminology section yes that 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 is my number one is absolutely redo the terminology and actually define everything you're talking about everything you're referring to when you say gender what is gender because i've seen the exact same sentence you know say gender gender identity gender expression gender roles that's like okay so how are all these things different and unique and how are they interplaying and when you talk about gender diverse gender diverse in regard to what 
Because, yeah, because in my case, I wasn't just a tomboy. I mean, I was, I was a tomboy, but more than that, I also believed that I was a boy. So that's that aspect, right? The, so the being the tomboy was maybe gender diversity. That's not pathology. I totally agree with that. Leave me alone. But it was that that psychological thing that happens, right? That I truly believed I was a boy. That that part, I don't buy that. That's just that's just natural diversity. Yeah, it's. Very, it's, it's- it seems to be in, intentional, though, right? To just call it all diversity, because that's mm-hmm. that's that's a broader brush. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, I echo what, uh, especially the terminology, um, just de- defining uh, gender, gender diversity. Sure, include gender diversity in the standards of care. I don't know why you would, but go for it. But at least define it, and then also, um, I know that they wanted to move away from gender dysphoria and call it incongruence. And to me, calling it incongruence. Uh, it, it bakes in gender ideology. It bakes in the fact that everybody, they're basically assuming everyone has a gender identity. You have to have an identity in order for that to be incongruent from your sex. Um, and so I think, you know, fine, if you want to think about it that way, define what incongruence is. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so yeah, those definitions, yeah, chapter on desistance, detransition. Um, I mean, the, the, I, the recommendations could be. Uh, could be endless. I mean, also the, just the, the, on, the, on the face, explaining the surgeries that are necessary based on what sex someone was assigned. I mean, you know, it's super flu- superfluous language because um, you're very clearly saying sex is real if you're requiring all these these medical interventions to to alter that 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 sex presentation. Um, uh, yeah, terminology first and foremost is is my thing. I think as well, um, maybe not something to be included in the revised version, but even just adding a comment and calling out the ideological capture of it. Um, we already sort of touched on that, but obviously the language they're using is something that many uh, other professionals would have a problem with, sex being assigned only being one of them. Um, so I think if you were to go through a couple of the chapters, you recognise the ideological language right away, take note of it, and uh, comment about that. Just say, you know, this is not the way I want my medical professionals to be talking. Mm-hmm. Well, especially when there are two very different ideological camps that are kind of dividing the community, the clinical community, as well as the trans community, it would seem like what I would expect and what I would want and advise for the clinical organization that's overseeing our care it's like stay out of the politics like it's not their job Mm -hmm. to dictate to either camp what our politics should be people are free to choose their politics and choose their identities but i don't expect the medical community to impose an ideological framework just give us the science Mm -hmm. make treatment safe make treatment evidence-based and leave people to whatever politics they want to choose for themselves. Seems like the safest, the to, safest way that they should go. That we've gotten to a place where that even has to be said is nuts, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I am going to have to love and leave you guys, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this would be a good place to wrap up. I think so. Thank Absolutely. you all for the conversation. Uh, I'm just happy to be in my first Transparency podcast. <laughs> it's about the time. <laughs> so I think I'll do some light editing just to take out some awkward silences and then I'll, uh, I'll post it tonight. Brilliant. Okay, great. 
Well, you guys have a good night or thank you or wherever you are. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Thanks, Thanks all. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.